Hello, and welcome to the IP Podcast, brought to you by Danes, one of Europe's leading firms of specialist patent and trademark attorneys. The IP Podcast is all about intellectual property and how IP can add significant value to startups and SMEs, particularly when they're looking to grow and finance that growth. So if your company is investing in patents or trademarks, or considering doing so, then this podcast is for you. We'd love to hear from you on what areas of IP are important to your business. So please email us at info at and we'll aim to cover these issues in a future podcast. Also, if you do enjoy this podcast, please remember to subscribe for future episodes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the IP podcast. After a short break from patents last week, when we covered an introduction to trademarks, I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Mark Bell from the Danes Engineering Group. This week, we're going to be talking about one of the most important areas in the whole patent process, something known as freedom to operate. Mark, welcome back. Hi, Ollie. Thanks. It's good to be back and, yeah, looking forward to today's episode. Yeah, uh, I know this is an absolutely key area for anyone looking at patents. So let's let's crack on. So, Mark, what exactly is freedom to operate? Yeah, freedom to operate, or FTO as we often call it, refers to whether it's going to be commercially safe to use your product or service, that is to make, sell, import, offer as a service, etc., your product or service, without infringing someone else's, that is a third party's, intellectual property rights. And while this applies to all IP rights, we're going to focus on how it affects patents today. And as you've mentioned, this is a really important area, and particularly when launching a product or service, you want to be confident that you've got this freedom to operate because, as we'll get on to discuss, you can get into a loss of hot water and there can be significant commercial repercussions were you to end up infringing someone else's rights. But surely not, if I have my own patents already granted for my invention, I don't need to worry about other people's patents, do I? Unfortunately, the, that's not the case. You you do need to be worried or, or rather aware, I'd say, of other people's rights. It's a very important but often confused point that getting a patent for your own invention on the one hand and potentially infringing someone else's patent, these are separate issues. So if there's one thing that I'd like people to take away from our whole podcast series, that is it. You getting a patent for your own invention does not give you protection against infringing other people's patents. It's really important that to understand that. Okay, so this does sound important. Can you explain why that is? There are two main reasons for this. First, patents are negative rights. And that means that having a patent of your own does not positively allow you to do anything. They don't give you permission to make and sell a product that includes your invention, for example. Instead, they stop other people using your patented invention. The other thing is that it's perfectly possible for you to be granted a patent for your invention, but in a way that falls wholly sometimes within the scope of a previous patent that's owned by someone else, a third party. This then means that were you to make and sell a product or offer a service that incorporated your invention, you could be infringing someone else's, the third party's patent. 
For these reasons, having your own granted patent isn't a defence if you have infringed another, and that would be generally earlier patent. Okay, can we just go back a little bit to what you, you just mentioned there? So can you provide an example for a company developing a product that they're able to get a patent for, but that then infringes someone else's patent? Yeah, definitely. And here, as I often do with my, my trainees at work, we'll, we'll take a simple example to help our listeners understand this. And here I found one that hopefully gives an interesting patent story with some historical patents involved. So Carl Bentz, when he invented the first production automobile in back in 1885, he was able to get a patent for his vehicle, which was described in the patent as a vehicle with gas engine operation. So he's gone and got his patent for his invention. Now, a different car manufacturer coming along later and improving on that original car. So, for example, they may have developed a version having four wheels and the original Bentz car only had three wheels or might be providing an enclosed carriage and the, the original Bentz car was just an open carriage without a roof. Those developments, the other companies, they may be able to obtain a patent for those developments, as long as those represented new and inventive features compared to the original Bentz car and any other knowledge of previous cars that had been developed before those later patent applications were filed. However, once those other companies could get patents for those new inventions, but if their new car with those patented features still had all the features that were detailed in Carl Bentz's original patent, the other car manufacturers wouldn't be able to make and sell their new car without Carl Bentz's permission, without infringing his original patent, even if they had their own patent. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. So what is the worst thing that can happen? Could, could I actually get sued? So worst case scenario, you'd be taken to court and if found to be infringing someone else's patent, you might have to pay monetary damages or some other remedy to the patent owner, as well as potentially having an injunction granted against you, preventing you from making and selling your product or offering your service. You would also likely have to pay the other side's legal costs. And as you will appreciate, for a small company, this can be devastating. However, I don't want to be a doom monger and it's important to note that only a small fraction of cases end up reaching this stage of, of going to court. At the earlier stages, often when a competitor believes that you might be infringing their patent, the thing that would normally happen is they would send you a letter indicating that they own this patent and they believe you to be committing infringing acts. If you ever were to receive such a letter, the thing to do is to immediately seek the advice of a patent attorney as to the best way to respond. I think we're actually planning to have a whole separate podcast episode on this topic of what to do when such a third party threatens you with infringement. So we won't go into a huge amount of detail here. But for example, th there may be some ways out of this. It may be that actually you aren't infringing the patent. It may be that their patent is invalid, or there may be ways for you to change your product or service to avoid infringing that patent. Indeed, it might even be that that third party has no valid claim whatsoever, and they're just 
a competitor that's trying to scare you off making or selling your your product. And actually, there are legal remedies if people threaten you and there's no valid basis for that. There's also the scenario that actually you might be infringing, but the best way is to come to a settlement with the patent owner to avoid it going to court. So there are lots of ways to diffuse such a situation. Even better, if a company has proactively identified patents that are owned by other companies, there are steps that they can then take to reduce the risk of these patents completely stopping what they're doing, such as the launch of a product, as we'll discuss in a minute. Okay, so I think we've established that this this is potentially catastrophic. So when should a company start thinking about FTO? And how do you kind of be proactive, as you say, about this? In an ideal world, companies would be thinking about FTO at the start and all the way through their innovation process, from first conception of an idea to the launch of a product or service. There are different types of searches that can be performed at these different stages, such as a state-of-the-art search at the beginning, so companies are aware of different players in an area of technology, and this can be used to shape your R&D to avoid any significant blocking patterns. There are then watching searches as you go along to keep an eye on competitors that you might have identified. And then there might be more specific freedom to operate searches once a company has finalised a product and wants confidence that it can launch that product without the risk of infringing someone else's patent. And this process can go hand in hand with the drafting and filing of a company's own patent applications for their developments to, to their products as part of that whole process. However, it's quite expensive to be performing all that searching all the time at all stages of product developments for all of a company's products. So you might need to be a bit selective as to when you choose to do this type of searching. And most often, we'll conduct an FTO search for clients once they have a reasonable idea of what their fully formed product will look like before they're ready to make and sell the product or service commercially. Another time that we might do this is during an investment round, for example. And this is because investors into that company want to have the confidence when they're investing that there aren't going to be any major threats from the company's competitors that they might be infringing their rights. Okay, so so what is the process for determining what's already out there? Are there different steps to go through? How, how, do, you, how do you go through that? So as I alluded to just before, the best way to do this and to minimise this risk is to conduct what we call an FTO search. And we work with searching companies who are specialists in this area to perform the search. And then we as the patent attorneys would review the results from the search and advise our clients on them and the actions that need to be taken. Now, unfortunately, there's no such thing as a completely exhaustive search. To do this, you'd need to search for all possible variations, generalizations in all different target markets. And that would cost an absolute fortune and, you know, isn't going to be money well spent. You need to optimize your your search in a way. So so how do you optimize your search? There are a number of ways that you can do this. First, you want to define the product to be searched, so the product that you might be about to launch, say, what are its features and the main variants of those? And this description, this definition of the product will be what the searching company takes as the search brief to then 
compare against the patent claims of third parties' patents. So the, the searching company will go away and use that to find these other patents. What you also need to decide is where you want to search. That is, you know, where do you want to establish your freedom to operate? As we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, patents are territorial rights that cover individual different jurisdictions. So you need to think about which are the most important countries that you want to be making and selling your product or offering your service in. It's then the patents of those countries which will be searched against the search brief that's been drawn up. So to return the patents from those those different countries that you're interested in. And once those search results have been returned, the, the patents or the pending applications that could be problematic, they should be analysed to then determine if actually there's a potential risk of infringement by your proposed product or service. And it's very much, well, all of those things, but very much the last thing that we as patent attorneys can advise and help with. Okay, two kind of fairly key questions that we all seem to ask. How much will these searches cost me and how long will they take? So if I'm eager to crack on and start making and selling my products, what's it going to cost and how long will it take? So just briefly, how long will it take? That we can be more certain about that than, than the cost. Generally, a search will take a few weeks and then to analyse it will take a few weeks. So, you know, a month or so to complete that that process, I'd say. As to cost, as I've mentioned before, the more exhaustive the search, the more expensive the search will be. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, when it comes to costs, it very much depends. Because FTO needs to be established in each jurisdiction that you're interested in, the cost can then multiply if you're interested in establishing FTO in multiple different jurisdictions. However, to give sort of a finger in the air rough guide, a reasonable FTO search for a small number of jurisdictions may be able to be performed for a cost of between, say, thousand and two and a half thousand pounds, but can easily be higher, particularly if a large number of countries need to be covered. But trust me, that can be money very well spent if it avoids some of the problems that, that we've talked about of coming into conflict with other people's patent rights. Now, that cost doesn't include the cost of us as the patent attorneys reviewing and advising on those search results. And that's primarily to determine whether our client's proposed product or service falls within the scope of the claims of a third party's patent that has been identified by the search. Now, that bit, that's a really important analysis to do because the understanding of a language of a patent is very much a skill in itself. And it's that bit which is key to determine whether you've got that freedom to operate or not. And these attorney costs associated with this analysis will depend on the number of documents that have been returned by the search. The more documents, the longer the review and the higher the cost. So again, as a very rough cost, it can be several thousands of pounds for us to do that commissioning and the analysis of the search. Now, you might think, well, a company is going to be put off performing these sort of searches because of that high cost. I would say that that's tantamount to sticking your head in the sand. It's much better to be spending several or even tens of thousands of pounds at that stage before investing in what could be orders of magnitude, you know, possibly hundreds of thousands, even millions of pounds investing in manufacturing facilities, generating stock, 
you know, all the marketing in various different jurisdictions associated with the launch of the product. Because if you were then to be sued for infringement by a competitor, you could run the risk of having to change or shut down a whole product line. You could be facing an injunction against you while the matter's dealt with in court. And if that went the wrong way for you, you know, if it ended up going really badly, that could be really expensive as well. Okay, so let's say that the FTO search has come back and you as the patent attorney have identified the third party rights. What happens if you then identify some of these patents which do look problematic? Yeah, there are a number of options here available to you and it's not necessarily game over. Are there a number of ways that your product or service could be redesigned to avoid infringing that patent, for example? Or you could look, how long do these patents have left to run? Are they patents just near the end of their term and you could wait a year or so until they expire before you launch your product? Or could a patent that's been identified as being potentially problematic, could that be licensed or even acquired such that you then have the explicit permission or freedom to operate to work the invention that's covered by that patent? Another thing that we might look at is... Is that problematic pattern actually valid itself? Sometimes, as we've discussed in previous episodes, patent examiners don't always get it right when they're examining and granting patents. So it might be possible to find some prior art, that is, some previously published documents, and that might require a search in itself, that are able to show that the third party shouldn't have been granted their patent in the first place. And if you identify, you know, potential previous documents like that, that can be really useful leverage for getting a license from this third party on on particularly beneficial terms. Or if it's absolutely necessary, if they're not playing ball, then you might be able to bring proceedings against them to have their patent revoked such that you clear the way and that patent's no longer a problem for you. Also on, on that sort of topic, if it's a still an application or or maybe a recently granted patent, it might be possible for you to file what we've discussed previously about third party observations or an opposition against the patent to stop the the patent being granted or, or if it's just been granted to revoke the patent. So I think in summary, identifying a problematic patent from an FTO search that's owned by someone else that's often not a complete showstopper. There are often a number of different ways to deal with that. So Mark, as a patent attorney, what can you do for our clients? We, we've covered a few kind of points, but can you give an overview of, of how you can help? Yeah, sure. So essentially, we as patent attorneys, we can help with all stages of an FTO search and analysis. So at the beginning, we can help our clients to analyze their products to be able to draw up the search brief for the searching company. We can help decide how exhaustive the search needs to be, either what needs to be searched from a technical perspective or also which countries the search needs to be performed in to identify the relevant patents of that country. Probably the most important thing, as I said before, is helping in analysing those search results that come back to understand the scope of the patent claims that have been returned by the search so that we can work out which patents may be problematic and how we could deal with those in the number of ways that we've discussed so that we're able to help maintain or even open up our clients' freedom to operate. Thanks, Maud. I think this is clearly a hugely important topic. 
So if any of our listeners do have any questions or would like to discuss any FTO issues or concerns either now or in the future, please do contact Mark at mbell at danes.com. But it, it certainly sounds like if you're in any doubt at all, you should contact a patent attorney or Mark sooner rather than later. Yeah, very much so. Great. Okay. Before we sign off, Mark, I know there's recently been some some big news regarding what would be the biggest change to the European patent system in more than 40 years. Could you just explain to our listeners what this is all about? Yeah, sure. So just briefly, because we, we talked about this and what we're referring to is the Unified Patent Court or the UPC. We talked about that in, in episode seven. So listeners can go back and listen to that for more details. This was supposed to be coming into being probably about three years ago now, but it was derailed by a number of things, including by Brexit. And shortly after Brexit, indeed, the UK ratified their membership of the UPC system. But then they changed their mind and decided that the UK no longer wanted to take part in in that system. But it was very much just sort of word of mouth discussion type announcement. Now, just last week, it was the UK actually formally wrote to the UPC Secretariat and made an announcement, made a statement in the House of Commons saying formally that it was withdrawing its previous ratification. So that for the UK as being part of the UP system was very much the the nail in the coffin there. And just again, very, very briefly, if we can, is that the nail in the coffin for the UPC completely or is this still a chance for things to kind of move forward? I think initially it's going to be difficult because the system required the UK to be part of that system. I think there's still positive noises coming from the countries that do want it to go ahead, including recently from Germany, even though there's been a constitutional challenge in Germany to the UPC system. So I think it will require some discussion, some rewording of the agreements and, you know, some decisions on actually, is it going to be worth going ahead with this pan-EU system, because that's what it was, a pan-EU system for litigating patents without the UK's involvement, because that may well be less commercially attractive to patent litigants. So it, it could be a number of years still before it goes ahead, if if it does at all. Okay, thanks, Mark. It is a fairly kind of meaty topic, the UPC. Mark has actually written an article on sort of the latest developments. So if you're interested in, in finding out more, please have a look on our website, on our Inspired Thinking page, and you'll find Mark's article there, giving an update on that. I think, Mark, we'd better leave it there for now. But if anyone would like to know more about freedom to operate, the UPC, or any other IP-related issues, please do contact Mark at mbell at danes.com. So thanks again, Mark. What are we going to be looking at next week? Yeah, so I think as we've talked about FTO this week, it will be good next week to look at what actually does happen or what you should do if a third party sends you a letter saying, I think you infringe my patent. What are the options for our clients at that stage? Great. Look forward to that already. Thanks again, Mark. And thanks to our listeners. Bye for now. Bye. And thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the IP podcast brought to you by Danes. If you'd like to contact us about any IP related issues, please email us at info at danes.com or contact us via LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook or visit our website danes.com. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already.